Thank you very much. Right. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you're with us this morning. I pray that um, in the, the heat and the fun and frolics of noise at the back and just do you use the words that I say to reach hearts however you want to reach them. Lord God, this is about glorifying you and about people knowing you. And I pray, Lord God, that you're with us this morning as I share what I've got. Um, amen. Right, before I go any further... We were aware that the uh, children were going to be in, and also some adults have a slightly shorter attention span. No names, Pete. Um, what we have here, which I will put, I'm going to put them at the back, actually. Uh, these are bingo cards with words that were in my first draft. Um, so I'm going to put them on this chair here. And there are some pens there. So if you as an adult, as a family, as a young person, want to get a bingo card, straight in there. That's why I love that man. Um, there are prizes on offer. Can't guarantee all the words are going to be in there now because it was the first draft. Um, but we thought it would be a little bit more kind of engaging. Um, if you like the idea, it was all my wife's effort. If you don't, it was mine. Um, right. To the church in Philadelphia, if we could have the first thing up, please. Okay, let's read this together. We can read while people are getting stuff. That's absolutely fine. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those... Uh, who are a synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's quite a lot there. Um, to do this justice and to really get into it and unpack the whole thing, um, would take probably about three hours um, and probably a detailed understanding of Greek. Um, I'm going to highlight a few little things. This is a few bits that I felt when I was preparing this over the last few weeks that I felt kind of God talked to me about. Um, basically, I want to talk about love, holiness, being true, things that are open and closed, and perseverance. Those are kind of my, my five kind of take-home kind of messages. It's only five. Um, so, to the church in Philadelphia, I don't know what you think of when you think about Philadelphia. Um, I'll be honest, I think about cheese spread. Um, I also think about the city in the States where the Declaration of Independence was signed, um, or for those who are slightly um, differently inclined, that's where Will Smith came from, and also the 2017 Super Bowl champions. Um, that's not the Philadelphia we're talking about. This is a, a Philadelphia that's most likely in Turkey. Um, in a city which apparently now is known for its product of dried raisins. 
Um, I don't think that's necessarily relevant to anything, but this is, this is the church. But it was the name that kind of struck me. Um, and the name pretty much means the city of brotherly love. That's what Philadelphia means. Um, the Greeks had different words for love. One of them um, is philia. If we could have the uh, next one, please, John. Um, so philia is one of the words for Greek, in Greek for love. That's kind of the brotherly love. We love other people. Um, that kind of love between friends. That, that's the kind of word. So the, the city of brotherly love. And what I was struck by is that actually this is a, a letter from Jesus to his church, to his bride. This is a letter from Jesus to the ones he loves. Now, when this was written about roughly 1900 years ago, there wasn't any other means by which to communicate things. There wasn't social media, you couldn't tweet things, you couldn't um, Snapchat, you couldn't text it, uh, you couldn't ring them. What we had was letters, and this was a communication, this is a love letter. This is a letter expressing love. And the love that God expresses is not simply philia, but a love called agape. So the way that God loves you is more than that. The way that God loves you is expressed through 1 Corinthians 13, where it says, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And that's the love that God has for you. This morning we, were, we heard a little bit about um, the fact that you're loved. And we're very quick to, to use words like love in our society. You know, I, we've been to the beach. We love sunny days at the beach. I love pizza probably too much. Um, we love spending time with friends. We like films. We love all sorts of stuff. But this is a real love. This is a deep love. This is a depth to this. Where God comes from, the love that he has for you. We need to let that sink in. Everything that we're going to look at is based on that. That this is how Jesus is towards his church, to his bride, his people, to you and me. He, he never gives up. He never fails. His love is true. He loves you beyond anything you can comprehend. This is a sacrificial, self-giving love. This is not about self-serving. This is not about doing something to make me feel better. Yes, when we love other people sacrificially, we do feel good about ourselves. We do feel good about the situation. But the point of God's love is not a case of, oh, I, I want to feel like this. Pop, pop songs are filled with this idea of, of I love you because of how you, because how you make me feel. You make me feel like this. You make me, it's all about me. And that's not God's love. God's love is all about giving sacrificially of himself to us consistently, continuously, regardless of what we have done, regardless of where we are at, regardless of how we feel, regardless of anything else. It's all about him loving us because he chooses to. And we need to know that. We have to pause. We have to get that in our heads, that we are loved because he chooses to love us. We didn't earn it. You can't earn it. And you can't lose it because you didn't earn it. You have to understand that you are loved because God says, do you know what? I love you. Even when you turn around and do nasty things in his face, he turns around and says, I love you. This is agape love. This is this unconditional. It's dependent on the one that's giving it, not dependent <coughs> upon the person who's receiving it. So we need to know that that's where it starts.
Then we get into this bit. These are the words of him that is true and uh, sorry, him that is holy and true. Jesus is holy. I want to explore holiness for a second. I have obviously because I'm going to talk about holiness. I've got to picture some crisps. Um, I hopefully yeah. Clearly, there's a link between God's holiness and salt and vinegar flavored discos. Um, for me, as a child, um, what I used to do is I would take the crisps. I would pour them out. I can't believe that on the internet I found a pa- just literally a bowl of crisps. So I didn't, I didn't set this up. Um, but what I used to do as a child is I'd pour them out and I'd separate them. Because they're supposed to be discs. But what, invariably what would happen is some would be broken, some would be chipped, some would just be little pieces. And I used to separate them out into those that were kind of the, the perfect crisp, those are the round ones, those ones that the way they were supposed to be. And the others... Now, you see, what holiness is, is holiness is where Jesus is set apart because he is pure. Because there is no blemish, there's no imperfection, there's nothing wrong with him. There's no chips, there's no breaks, there's no cracks. He is holy. He is completely pure and blemishless. And we need to understand this for multiple reasons. One of the reasons, main reasons being that sin is not just against God, but it is absolutely abhorrent to him. He hates it. Every Christmas, I try and get my brother to eat Brussels sprouts because he hates them. Um, and now that he's got children, I challenge him in front of his children because obviously there's that whole element of do I back down in front of my kids when I'm telling them to eat stuff and now I'm being told to eat something, so hey, where do I go with this? I like to put him on the spot. Um, Brussels are abhorrent to my brother. He hates them. I don't like courgettes. I don't like them. There's something you put it. If I know there's courgettes in food when I was younger, I just wouldn't want to eat it. There are things like that that we know that we just want to keep away from it. There are just things we hate. Certain textures, certain feels, certain the, the taste of metal in your mouth. Some people, it's just like yeah. Now imagine that, but times about four hundred thousand million. God hates sin. It's not just that it gets in the way. It's not just that it's naughty. He hates it. The reason he hates it is that God has a plan for all of us. Well, what's the point? God has a plan which we fit into. He has a plan about how everything works. God made the world. He made the universe. He made everything. He made you. He made me. And so he has a way that everything works. And sin is when we choose to go against that. We might not be actively thinking about hurting people. It's not about trying to... I, I, I do not believe that I'm going to go out on a limb and say anyone in this room wakes up in the morning and says, right, how can I hurt people today? I don't wake up thinking, how can I annoy my children? How can I really upset Emma? What can I do? I don't think about it. I seem to manage to do it anyway, but it isn't a decision that I make in the morning to, to set out to hurt people. But what I do do is I make decisions which are selfish. I make decisions which are about me. I make decisions which are about what I want, how I feel, regardless of the consequences of anybody else. It's not that I necessarily want to hurt people, but I do things about me. And sin gets in. Some sin is obvious and some sin is subtle. But sin is sin and it's wrong. Because it's destructive. As I said, there is a way that things should be. And when we don't follow that, when we don't do things the way they should be, things get destroyed. If you don't believe me, go into the car park, look at the red Skoda, and look at the lines on the side where my two-year-old, I love you, Katie, decided to try and wash our car, my car, with a rock. (laughs) 
There's a right way to rush, wash a car. There's a right piece of equipment to use. It is not a rock. It has scrapes on it. She didn't walk out the front going, how can I mess up Dad's car? She was trying to be helpful. But she did it the wrong way. And when we choose to do things the way that it shouldn't be, we mess things up and it's destructive. And sometimes it's hugely destructive and it impacts lives, it destroys lives. Because I want what I want. It's about me. That's the, the, the underlying message that seems to come through in the world. And sin is completely and utterly abhorrent to God. We're, we're designed to live according to his direction. It's not, it causes damage. Sin causes damage. We've got to get rid of it. It weasels its way in, convincing you that actually what you're doing is fine. Convincing you that what you're doing, it doesn't really matter that much. It's not that big a deal. Most of us aren't going around doing big things. We're just doing little things. We're just getting across here and there. We're just swearing at the driver that just cut us up because they're an idiot. Because don't they know it's, it's a 40 mile an hour zone. Why are you still driving at 30? Or the ones that really annoy me where they're driving at 40 regardless of the speed limit. It's 60 and you're doing 40. It slows to 30 and you're still doing 40. And the sin creeps in. Because you're looking around for the policeman to try and catch them, and you want it. You, I, maybe you guys are fine. I just, you know, the stuff creeps into our lives, and we find the attitudes, the way we speak, the way we we think, the the way we are towards people. It creeps in, and our own personal sin needs dealing with. I'm not talking about telling other people you're wrong. I'm not saying standing here saying this is wrong. You shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be doing this. I'm not sitting here picking out people and saying, this is wrong about you. What I'm talking about is us sitting down, looking at us and saying, what's wrong about me? Lord, show me, seek me, search me, know, seek out any offensive way in me. Anything that offends you, seek it out in me and show me that I may be brought to repentance. This is not about condemnation. But there are things in our lives, if we're honest. Why the pause? Because immediately several things flash through my head about my life that I need to bring before God and say, Lord, this is wrong. I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't be like this. I shouldn't think this. I shouldn't act this way. I need your help. I want to repent. I want to do 180 and walk your way. I want to trust in you. We need to bring our lives to God in repentance. This is not about judging others. This is not about condemning ourselves. This is about conviction and repentance through the Holy Spirit. Jesus is also true. I've got another picture, please. Luke, I need your help. You know those, yeah? I reckon Luke's one of about seven people in the room. See, I thought young people and children might be in. I don't know. Right. Luke, what is it? It's a Nintendo Switch. Emma, can you have some sweets, please? Thanks. That's all I needed from you. You see, you gave the answer. You got up, stood up. Thank you. Appreciate that. So, it's a Nintendo Switch. What's a Nintendo Switch? It's a game console. See, Nintendo gave an announcement that they were bringing out a new version of the Switch, this game console. They'll bring out a new version. And, indeed. Um, they're bringing out a new version of it. And the rumor spread on the internet that if you had bought an old version after they had announced the new version, then you could take the old one back and then swap it for a new one, free of charge. Which sounds ridiculous, because the old one's going to be vastly less expensive than a new one. And it is not true. But 
it spread on social media and various websites that people believed it so much to the point that Nintendo actually had to put out a statement saying, this is not true, we are not going to swap them. And the point is this, that we live in a world with so many perspectives and personal truths, and when we take into account the, uh, the ability we have to, to communicate now, the multiple ways we can communicate and gossip, and also the sinfulness of humanity, we find there's a lot of truth out there. There's a lot of stuff that masquerades as truth. There's a lot of personal perspectives and personal truths. We live in a society where opinion is easily expressed and facts are twisted and repeated or retweeted. People believe anything. Politicians will take snippets of conversations and they'll twist it to suit them. People will quote things as facts without evidence. The media will push ideas and opinions without openly expressing any bias or agenda that comes with it. There's all kinds of stuff there where people are... This is my truth. This is what's true for me. From my perspective, this is how it is. And effectively what we're saying is there is no truth. Because if everything is true, then nothing is true. It's just how it is. You see, Jesus is true. Jesus is truth. He said he was the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. That means that everything else that, that claims to offer life to the full, everything that claims to offer enlightenment or salvation is just simply wrong. It's not true. We can trust what Jesus has said and has done for us. We can trust him completely and implicitly and totally and utterly because he is true. Everything else falls away in light of his truth. So where have we got to? Let's put these three things together. First off, we're loved. And so well, I might not feel loved, but actually Jesus is true. So when he says I'm loved, I can just take him at his word and say he's true. Well, how, how do I know that I can trust him? Well, he's holy, you see. He's set apart. He's without sin, so he doesn't lie. So he's holy and set apart and he's without sin. It's completely true and tells you that he loves you. It's just how it is then. It's fact. There's no debate. There's no discussion. And then it says, what he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. Could I have the next one, please? Oh, sorry. I've jumped ahead of myself. My, my, my mistake. That's fine. We'll go with that. The point of Jesus dying for us and being raised from the dead is so that our sin is dealt with and we can have a relationship with God. Jesus has opened a way to the Father through him. He's the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through him. He's the only way to God is through Jesus, and he's opened that way. And that way which is now open cannot be shut by anybody, including you. Yes, darling? You right? Love you. That's my daughter. That's my son. And I made a decision, what do I do if they, if they talk to me? And the answer was, actually, I'm going to talk to them. Because the thing is, the way is open. She couldn't have timed that better. Yeah. The way is open because I am always their dad. And yes, I struggle because I'm, I'm, I'm human. And I, I get busy and I can't do it right now. And I've got to do this first. But it's never like that with him. 
It's never like that with God. It's never like that through Jesus. It's never a case of, come back later. We have open access 24-7 through Jesus to God. We live, we live in a society which is so, is, is so getting used to things being open all the time, we can't cope when they're shut. We get annoyed when people don't answer phones because it's after five o'clock or it's a Saturday morning. Or when the internet goes down, you can't get hold of your bank at one o'clock in the morning. Maybe that's just me. But we, do, we, we live in a world where we expect instant access all the time. Having worked with people, there are people that expect you to answer emails all the time and they turn up at your workplace expecting to have meetings there and then. That's how it works. Why can't you see me now? Because I'm doing something else. It's never like that with God. The way is open and no one can shut that. The way to salvation is open. Your salvation is completely open. But at the same time, the lines of communication are open permanently. Not only that, he has shut the way. If you, if you have given your life to Jesus, if you have said, Lord, these are things that I do wrong. I am sorry. I want you to be Lord. I want you to be in charge of me. If you have repented, you want to turn away from that and ask him to help you with that, and you acknowledge Jesus as Lord of your life, give him free access to everything, if you are in a relationship with Jesus, then the way to death has been closed to you. Because Jesus has already taken that path so that you cannot go that way anymore because he's closed that one. So fundamentally, he's opened the way to him and closed the way to death for you. And if you're not in that place and you don't know Jesus in that way, you can because it's open to you as well if you choose to take it. But it's more than that as well. Because this is a relationship, this is ongoing. So it says here, oh, I've lost my proverbs one. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. That's what it says in Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. Submit to him. Know him. Lay it before him. It doesn't mean acknowledge isn't like, you know, kind of walking down the street... Jesus. Um, it's not that kind of acknowledgement. It's submission to him in everything. And he will make your path straight. You have open access to God to say, okay, where do I go with this? Open things. Close things. One of the things we have, how do we, how do, we, how do, we do this? When we've submitted to God's rule and we've entered into that relationship, we need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And as I said, we've got 24 access to the Holy Spirit. When the, when the disciples were in Jerusalem, so picture the scene. Jesus has died. And the disciples are like, wordless. Because they're built up that this is the, this, the Messiah, the Holy One. This is the one that's going to save them. And now he's dead. I mean, this is panic. This is despair. Nothing works. It was a lie. And then three days later, bang, resurrected Christ. We go from the pits of what we're going to do to... It's real. And then they spend time with the resurrected Jesus. I don't know how much time you spent with anyone that's been resurrected from the dead. I'm limited in my experience of that. 
I would imagine that spending time with someone who has died, been dead, and is now alive again, is quite significant. And if it's Jesus, if it's the Son of God, that would be, they'd have been raring to go. They'd have been a bold and full of, of confidence. Like, yeah, let's go. This is real. This is true. You're never going to believe this. People, no one's going to get this. We've got to tell people. Because it was, and now, they're going to try and express this. And they're raring to go and they're ready and they're pumped up and they're fired up. And Jesus said, wait. When he gets to Jerusalem, wait for the Holy Spirit. That's a paraphrase. He said, wait. You see, we're to wait on the Holy Spirit. We're to wait for the Holy Spirit. We need to receive the same power that God and the disciples and Jesus himself waited for. We need to be empowered through the Holy Spirit. So here's a question. We have access 24-7 because the way is open to the Holy Spirit. Do we wait on the Holy Spirit daily? Because I don't. And then I wonder why it doesn't work. It's if we're not doing it, we're not living in the fullness that God's got for us. It's not a condemnation thing. It's not about saying you must, you should. It's like, it's like there being two rooms. We went, to a, um, we went to Warwick Castle over the summer. And in Warwick Castle, what they had is they have a big, like all castles, I'm sure you're aware of your, your history, big, massive kind of dining hall where the feast would be. And just off that, they have a small room where all the guests would be packed because what they used to try and do is lower the expectations before revealing the grandeur of the feast they were going to. So basically, they pack them all in a small room with not a lot in it, which is very uncomfortable. And then they open the doors and it's suddenly like, ah, wow. Now you see, we've got open access to the wow bit. And it's not about condemning people, but it's about asking the question, are you sat in the waiting room going, this isn't that great? When the door over there is open for you to go through. Because if we're not waiting on Jesus, if we're not waiting on the Holy Spirit, if we're not saying, I need you, it's not another thing to do. Try not to see it, whether you call it a quiet time, a devotional time, chatting to Jesus, talking to the Father, whatever you want to call that time with God, it's a relationship. So rather than seeing it as something to do, somebody said to me recently, rather than seeing it as something to do, I see it as a way of escaping all the other stuff I've got to do. It's time out from all the other stuff. It's I need time with my dad. I need time with with the one who loves me. Sammy came with me this morning, didn't you, darling? And on the way, I said, why did you want to come with Daddy? And he just wanted to come with me. So we got here early, and he came with me, and he came in the car, and then we stood at the back playing catch, throwing around um, your vulture. Yeah? That's what we did. We just spent time with each other. I wasn't thinking about, and this is, for me personally, I wasn't thinking about preaching, I wasn't thinking about everything that he's doing at home when we get home, I wasn't thinking about starting a new job a week tomorrow, I wasn't thinking about sorting out finances, or whether we've bought all the uniform for Sammy starting school, we weren't thinking about um, anything else. It was just spending, it was an escape. It was just me and my boy. That's what it's like. That's what it's like with Jesus. Because God's your father, he's your daddy. Go play catch with him if you get a chance. Talk to him, chat to him. We need to take that opportunity, which I'm going to try and give you in a minute. 
We also need to be aware that actually God will open other ways for us and also close other ways. If we acknowledge him in all of our ways, then he will make our paths straight. We need to lay everything before him and say, this is how it is, where do you want me to go with this? If we submit to him, then he will open ways for us and close other ways. Um, I was counting up at the beginning of the service. I have, I have applied for eight jobs in my life. So I'm 41. I went to university after taking a year out, and then I did a PGCE, which I finished when I was about 23. So between 23 and 41, I have applied for eight jobs, positions, promotions. Four of them I've got, four of them I haven't. All of them... Hello. All of them I have submitted to God. All of them... All of them I have sought to lay before God as I've gone for them. But one I pushed. One I really pushed because I wanted it. People prayed about it. People, I talked, talked it through with people. We prayed about it. Um, other people prayed about it. And the feeling was that it wasn't right. But that wasn't the answer I wanted. So I applied for it anyway. But I didn't just apply for it anyway. What happened was, I really wanted it. So I left my holiday in Norfolk. And I left my five-month pregnant wife with my parents. And I drove back to Bedford to fill out an application form to get it submitted. Then I got an interview. And in the interview, I didn't have any answers. My mind was blank. That doesn't happen to me in a work situation. In a work situation, I've got plenty to say. I can talk and I can talk and I can talk. The, last, the second to last interview I went for, it, the, the feedback I got from the interview panel was, you're right, you do talk a lot in the interview. But in this interview, I had nothing. They were asking me questions. I even knew people on the interview panel. I could see it in their eyes. And they were asking me questions. I could see them kind of trying to throw me, throw me kind of things to latch onto, and I just had nothing. You see, it wasn't right. It wasn't what God had for me. It wasn't God's best for me. It wasn't God's best for my family. It also wasn't God's best for who I was going to be working with. So he closed the door, and I wasn't getting it open. Because he knew what was best. Now the difficulty there, being honest, is that I got hurt by that process because I wanted something and I didn't get it. And that affected me. And now that affected my, me as a husband. And then when Sammy was born, it affected me as a father. And it affected me in my friendships. And it affected me in my work life. And it affected me as a person. And it had a, a detrimental effect on other people. Because I'd sought something which wasn't God's best, and while he didn't let me have it, the process actually caused damage, and I caused damage, and Emma, I'm sorry, because I messed up. But if you acknowledge him in all your ways, if you actually bring it to him, then he won't let you have things that you shouldn't have, even if you don't like it. The final thing is about holding on to what you have. So no one will take your crown. About perseverance. It's the Dory one. The fish. Um, yeah, just keep swimming. 
We persevere. We're called to persevere. We need to persevere. You see, life as a Christian, life in relationship with God is tough. It's hard. It's going to be. If you were sold the idea that being a Christian was easy, you bought into the wrong thing. Because life isn't easy. The only thing in life that you can get for free, as far as I can think of, are stuff like viruses and colds and illness and sickness and, you know, dirt. Rubbish. You get rubbish for free. Everything else costs something. And actually, this relationship costs the most because there is persecution. And if you're standing up for what's right, if you're standing up against injustice, if you're trying to do the right thing, if you're trying to live for the glory of God in your life daily, there's going to be persecution. You're going to have things come against you. And some of it will be really obvious and some of it will be really subtle, but it's going to happen. But we need to keep persevering. So how do we do that? We keep persevering through two ways. First off, as I said, we have the Holy Spirit. We're not supposed to do this on our own. He's alongside us, walking with us, and we're not spending time daily accessing him, which we have access to do, then we are not going to be able to persevere half as well, if at all. So perseverance, we need to spend time waiting on him, trusting him. And actually that can be hard. Sometimes you think, well, I don't know how to do it. Talk to him, like you talk to anybody else. I heard Andy say a while ago about some guy who got two chairs out. He sits on one and says, that one's for the Holy Spirit, and he talks. I tried it. I tried driving to work and say, okay, Lord, if you could sit in the passenger seat, that'd be great. There's no one else in the car. Nobody else thinks I'm crazy. But as he's talking, he's talking, he's having a chat. It's no more, you think, well, I think well, it looks weird. It sounds crazy. Is it any more crazy than taking a small box, putting it up to your ear and talking and expecting someone on the other end to hear it? Really? Because if you talk to somebody if you talk to the disciples and say, well, no, you just pick this thing up. I've got mine on me. It's over there. If you pick your... And you, you just talk to them. Or you can send a picture. That's craziness to them. What we're talking about is a reality of knowing and being able to talk to the Holy Spirit. But having the Holy Spirit there alongside us saying, help, I need you. This is tough. This is difficult. How would you handle this situation? I'm reading my Bible, but I don't understand this. I don't get this. Could you, what's the relevance? How does this fit in? Have those conversations. The other thing about perseverance, and this is where the Dory thing comes in, to just keep swimming thing at the end of, sorry, spoiler alert, towards the end of Finding Nemo, there's a bunch of fish trapped in a net. And the whole thing is that Nemo swims in and says, swim down, swim down. And then all these fish together, just keep swimming, just keep swimming. Swimming down and down and down and down until the net falls open and the, the thing breaks off the boat and all the fish are free. And the point is they were working together. And we need to remember that we were put together in a family as a body. This is letters to a church, and we are part of a body. You know, being part of a body is messy, because there are people involved. And people are annoying, and frustrating, and opinionated, and all sorts of stuff. And they're noisy when I want to be quiet, and they're quiet when I want to be loud. And they pray funny. And they dance, and they put their hands up, or they don't dance, and they don't put their hands up, or they clap, or they clap out of time. Um, or they sing, or they sing off key, or they don't sing, or they sit there with their eyes closed, or they just sit there looking mean and angry and hacked off. And people are different and weird, and it's hard work with people. If you've ever worked with anybody else, and you're not self-employed on your own, generally speaking, I, I, there's a phrase that I used to use at work. I'm a teacher. I say, school would be absolutely fine if you got rid of the kids and then got rid of the staff. Schools would work wonderfully if they had no children in them. Especially if they didn't have any teachers either. Great. 
Summer was quite nice. Just go in, get on with stuff, no one to disturb you. That's not how it works. We need to press into what Jesus has for us together. Don't stop coming on Sundays. We all have legitimate or semi-legitimate reasons why we start opting out of things. And as I say, this is not about condemnation. This is about me looking at my life and going, okay, what's got in the way for you? Because I can think of prayer meetings I haven't been to and the, re- and the reasons why. I can think about the, um, the Sunday services I've not been to and the reasons why. I can think about the small group midweek meetings that I've not gone to and the reasons why and how it's easy to opt out. And there's always things. I can give you 250 other things I have to do probably by tomorrow morning or why it's too hard, or why it's too difficult. I've got two small children, it's a great excuse for anything. Got no babysitter. Someone's got a babysitter. Someone's got to look after the children. It's not fair, Emma's been with them all day. It's not fair for me to come home from work and Emma have to stay home. So I will stay home and sacrifice doing anything else. I will stay home with the children because I'm that great a dad. Not because actually it's just got me out of doing something else. It's there sometimes. It's easy to opt out. It's easy to back off. It's easy to withdraw. We need to not do that. The reality is that if I lose a part of my body, there are consequences of how my body will work. If I lose my hand, I will have to adapt, overcome, and it will have a consequence on me. The consequence on my hand is it will just cease to function effectively. If we disengage from the body, we will cease to function effectively. I'm not saying you won't be saved anymore. I'm not saying you can't be a Christian, not come to church. I'm not saying any of that. What I'm saying is you will not function effectively because you're not living as the way it was designed for you to do so. And so we need to say, okay, what are we going to do with this? We need to persevere and keep on. We need to have the tenacity of a two-year-old who has found there are sweets in her daddy's bag and has had a packet of sweets and wants sweets. And when daddy says no, tries to get into them anyway and goes and sits at the back on a yellow chair trying to rip at them with her teeth because she wants sweets. Do I, have that, do I show that perseverance for anything? Or do I just go, well, whatever. I've prayed a bit. Have I, I've, there's some healing. Lord, heal them. Amen. Right, what's happening in Stranger Things on Netflix? I'm hungry. I need something to eat. I really need a cup of coffee. I'll pray off. I need to drink coffee first. I'm tired. I can't focus. There's washing that needs doing. Am I persevering? Am I pressing on or am I just opting out? I have to ask that question. I would encourage you to ask the same question honestly before God. So where do we go from here? Right, I want us to have an opportunity to pray. For some of us, you may not know Jesus. You may not know the love of Jesus. You may not know Jesus at all. And this is an opportunity for you to say, Lord... I want to know your love. For some of us, there might be sin that has weaseled its way in and we need to honestly bring it before God and say, I need to repent of this. This is an opportunity to do that. Uh, for others, you need to ask for the Holy Spirit to come in and walk with you and show you how to walk. Whether it's for perseverance or guidance. So that's where we're going to go now. That's where we're going to finish it. That's where we're going to land it. So I'm going to ask the band to come back. There's nothing mystical and magical. There's no, um, you want to come to the front? Come to the front. You want to go to the back? Go to the back. You want to go step outside? Step outside. It does not matter where you stand. 
You want to raise your hands up, raise your hands up. You want to close your eyes, close your eyes. I might encourage you to stand up. Personally, I find that if I sit down, I'm more passive. You may feel differently. But as the band prays, plays, if, there's a, if you want someone to pray for you, grab someone and say, please can you pray for me?